0: You're listening to Redacted. 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 Hosted by Oliver Alexander and Fraser Greenfield, our guest this episode is Tom Hardy.
1: An Atlanta-based design strategist who is currently a professor of design management at Savannah College of Art and Design. But He is perhaps best known for his 22-year-long career at IBM, starting as an industrial design graduate in 1970 before finishing his tenure at IBM's Corporate Design Program Director where he was instrumental in developing the original IBM ThinkPad, now a staple in the business world. Later, he was a prominent consultant at Samsung between 1996 and 2003, where Tom developed a new brand ethos and strategy that helped transform the company. His diverse work has been featured in Bloomberg's Businessweek, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and is prominent enough to justify his own Wikipedia page. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. To people who don't know who you are, probably the majority of our audience at this point, how would you describe yourself? Who is Tom
2: Hardy? I'm a design strategist and professor of design management at Savannah College of Art and Design. In my previous life, I was an industrial designer at IBM, as you mentioned, and and also held management roles there. And after retiring, I started my own consulting business, which I still do in addition to my academic work. I'm also a vintage car buff. I have a 1936. Chevrolet Master Deluxe Coupe with a 1970 Mustang 351 engine in it, to be specific. Wow. This time of year is fun to drive because it doesn't have air conditioning, doesn't have turn signal. And I'm not going to put air conditioning in there because I think it would ruin the, the character of the interior of the vehicle. So anyway, that's my current hobby.
0: That's fantastic. In addition to your work, there's been countless awards that you've won for a variety of Parts of your work, and it's just amazing what you've achieved in your career, and you should be very proud of that. And we're really honored to have you on the show. And leading into that, we'd like to dive into how you first discovered the field of industrial design.
2: It's interesting because when I was a junior in high school, I started thinking what I was going to study, and I was always active in art. And so I decided I wanted to be an architect. I was talking to my cousin at a family reunion, and he was asking me the question of what I was going to study in college. And I told him architecture. And he happened to be at Auburn University studying industrial design within the Department of Architecture. He was telling me about industrial design, and he invited me to come to the school, and he would show me around, and so I did that. It resonated with me. I just loved the whole idea of the product design. I mean, you know, I knew that there was a design field designing products, automobiles and so forth. But I got to see the process and meet the faculty, which were these unique people. One was from Switzerland, the other from Germany. And they were graduates from the Ulm School of Design in Germany. Ulm was the first design school in the world to teach Design process, which included semiotics, systems thinking, and so forth. Horst Riddle, who is a famous mathematician who coined the phrase wicked problems, was a faculty member there for several years. Graduates from that school, once they got out, they went around the world and started programs at universities for industrial design or architecture, graphic design. They also had filmmaking and fashion. These two Graduates that came to Auburn in the early 1960s started this program. And so I was hooked.
1: I probably have to throw in a tidbit here. I'm not really a fan of the term wicked problems. An old engineering mentor of mine told me that any sufficiently complex problem is just a series of smaller, simpler, easier to solve problems that are mashed together.
2: Wicked problems are typically those that are very complex. They're adaptive, so they change. So there's not really a single solution that can solve a particular problem because it's always evolving. The best you can do is address it and try to improve the results that you're going to be getting out of whatever situation that you're dealing in. In fact, there's a course that I teach, which is called Design, Chaos, and Complexity, which students deal with complex adaptive systems. It's a very interesting problem to deal with. It's open-ended, fundamentally.
0: It is, because in the day-to-day, sometimes when you're in the moment of design, it can feel very chaotic. In my professional experience, I do a lot of design for manufacture, and that can feel very, very chaotic. But also that chaos from one of your papers that you have published, I notice that you applied the methodology to embrace the chaos to drive the innovation.
2: Yes. I'm sorry, I don't remember the gentleman who said this, but there's a quote, without tension, there's no progress. Innovation typically is on the edge of chaos. If you really want to progress and get something that's not just an evolution, but might be a revolution, chaos is part of that process.
1: Every diamond is warmed
2: under pressure, so to speak. Oh, there you go. Yep.
1: So probably winding back the clock a bit more, how did you make your first big break in the industry?
2: When I graduated from Auburn in industrial design, my first job was with IBM. And of course, I was with that company for 22 years, as you mentioned. That was probably the best decision I ever made in my career was to join that company because it was global. When you did something, it was at a large scale. So, if you designed a product for the marketplace, then it went typically all over the world. And the company had some really interesting aspects to it when I joined, it was in 1970. There weren't any personal computers back then, it was all large systems. And it's interesting that today with the cloud, it's the same type of model, really. In fact, had I not had that education at Auburn based on the ULM process of systems thinking, holistic perspective, human-centered, and so forth, I wouldn't have been hired at IBM because that company was, and still is, a systems thinking company. They also had the principle that IBM was respect for the individual, and it was the individual employees, it was respect for the customer. That was the main tenet of the organization, and it was this fantastic experience.
1: What was that hiring process like in 1970? Did you find them in the newspaper or did they come into university and look for graduates?
2: Yeah, it was through the university. And and this is actually an interesting story because back then, there weren't nearly as many opportunities for industrial design as there are today. And those that were there were usually in either New York, Chicago, L.A., maybe San Francisco. But that was about it. And so there were a lot of recruiters that came from companies that weren't necessarily looking for industrial design, although they may have design programs within their organization somewhere. And so the strategy that I took was to do research into corporations that had real good design programs and sign up through the placement service at the school to get an interview with the company. Now, interestingly enough, The placement service at Auburn at that point didn't require you to be interested in a specific discipline. You could just be interested in the company. So I signed up for IBM and I did the same process with some other companies that had design because I knew that if usually with big companies like that, once you interview someone and you get in the system, then their human resources group makes sure that you get to the right person at some point. How things have changed. Yeah, I know. Thank goodness it was like that back then. So, what happened was, I put my name on the list for IBM. And so, I go to my interview, and it was somebody from the branch office in another city in the state. And he looked at my portfolio and said, Gosh, you know, you belong in product development. He said, I'm looking for marketing. But he said, We just opened up a new laboratory in Boca Raton, Florida. And they're going to be up next week, so you should sign up to talk to them. So I did that. So I go into the next interview, and the gentleman from from Boca Raton looks at my portfolio and said, "I know exactly what you do. My best friend is a graphic designer in the New Design Center in the laboratory." He said, "Do you mind if I send your portfolio to them?" And that's obviously, please do. And so. He sent the portfolio, and a couple of weeks later, I get a letter from the design center manager there, who managed both industrial design and graphic design. It's an IBM design center, had those two disciplines in it. He said, I really liked your work, but I just hired an industrial designer who transferred in from another IBM location. I mean, there were a lot of people that lived up in New England that wanted to go to Boca Town, Florida. So there were people inside the company that were transferring down, and obviously they took them before they hired somebody from the outside. So he said, but with your permission, I'd like to send your portfolio to our other development laboratory in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's upstate on the Hudson River. Because he said, I know that one of the designers there is going to transfer to California, and they're looking for a young designer to add to the mix. I obviously said yes please send it. He sent it up. I got invited to an interview, went up and did my thing, came back and I hadn't heard anything in a couple of weeks. So one afternoon I decided I've got to give the recruiter a call. And this was in the phone booth days. You know, we didn't have any cell phones back then. So I went to a phone booth right across from the design lab and called IBM rep and he said, well, coincidentally, I was getting ready to send you a letter to offer you the job. So he offered me the job in the phone booth. I accepted it and went back in the design studio. And I told my fellow students, I'm putting all the stuff in a locker and I'm going to go out and have a good time because I just, got, I just got a job. So I'll see you guys in three or four days.
1: So how long did this process take? It sounds like a lot of back forth by leisure was this maybe
2: like six months maybe six weeks to eight weeks something like that i think it wasn't a terribly long time because we were on a quarter system so you interview the quarter before the quarter you're going to graduate so that was like six months before you graduate you start interviewing because you may not get the first one so you may be interviewing a lot before you even get an offer so it's best to start early
1: i just find that fascinating i think that pre internet, it's all done by pen and paper. And it's faster than it is today. When I was interviewing at Honeywell for a grant position, I think the whole process took four plus months, and there were a lot more steps before I even spoke to a person. It really does make me think that maybe we missed out on the good old days.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. In fact, my portfolio, it was all print. All my photographs and everything, they were all printed in a large binder. Of course, I shipped that to IBM. I mean, I had copies of all the photographs, of course, but that was the only one that I had put together. I decided that I'm going to send the real deal because it's important. And so I just I took a chance that that company was going to take care of it. This is Tom Hardy, and you're listening to Redacted.
1: What kind of challenges did you face in the year 1970
2: as a fresh grad? Thinking back on this, when I went to work at that laboratory in New York, it was large systems. And IBM at that point, as I said, there weren't any personal computers. So you had you kind know, of large systems and medium-sized systems. And then you had all the periphery products like displays and printers and card machines back then and disk drives and all of that. Poughkeepsie focused on the large processing systems and then the interface to those with with the operator and some input-output devices and so forth. So I was the young designer in that design center. The other folks there had been with the company for a long time, and that was great because I learned from them. They were extremely nice putting up with this young kid coming in there. Probably one of the things that I had to really get into was the scale of the company. I mean, it was huge. At one point, when I was at IBM, there were 450,000 people in 160 countries. A company that size sets up a certain dynamic. There are a lot of things that happen or don't happen because of scale. I think probably getting used to dealing with the scale was one of the things. Of course, one of the great things was, because it was that scale, and this was way before the internet, we were on airplanes a lot, flying to different countries, and that was fantastic for me. Because when I was young, my family, we didn't fly a lot internationally. It was mostly in the United States for vacations and so forth. So IBM just opened up the world to me, because we had these 15 design centers all over Europe, all over the United States, in Japan. And so it was quite an education at that point in my career. Well, it's always an education, I think, no matter how old you are when you go to another culture. But to be able to go to the cultures at that point in my career, and I just soaked up all the design that I could from the environment, much much less the professionals that I was working with in those cultures. I remember the first time that I went to Europe, I think it was maybe 1971, but a year after I joined the company, I had to go to Sweden for research on a project I was doing. And instead of flying directly to Sweden, I decided to leave a couple of days early. So I flew to London. I took a cab down to the city. I put my luggage in a train station. and. Ran around London all day, just soaking up that environment. Hopped on a late train to Dover. And I took an overnight ferry to Belgium. Then I got on the train from, I think it was Ostend, Belgium, to Amsterdam. So the sun's coming up. I'm pulling into Amsterdam. So then I put my stuff in a locker at the train station and then ran around Amsterdam all day, soaking that up. And then came back and got my stuff and flew to Sweden and did the business. Whenever I could, I tried to add extra time and extra places on these trips.
0: It's always fascinating what you can gain from seeing different cultures in different places. Building on that, looking back on your career, what were the pivotal moments for you?
2: Well, one was being hired by IBM.
0: Mm, Yes.
2: And I think working in the early pre-PC environment, on what we called back then single-user computers. The moniker personal computer wasn't in the vernacular back then. We called it single-user computer because all the computers at that time, as I mentioned, were systems-oriented. And if you had a display in front of you, it was just a dumb terminal because everything was being done back in the mainframe through the network. So a single-user computer was defined as the box that had enough electronics in it and an interface, either keyboard and or visual display, that you could plug that box into the wall without going through the network and do real computing on it. And there weren't any products being sold at that point in the early 70s that were defined as a single-user computer. But IBM Research was working on some prototypes for that because we all knew that that was going to happen because you know the technology is always going to get smaller and the cost is going to get down the size will get smaller but the capacity will get larger and it will be lower cost and so there was an executive William Lowe in IBM who I think should be called the father of the IBM PC he understood what was going to happen and he funded a project in the Los Gatos, California, IBM Research Lab. IBM Research had locations around the world, and they didn't focus on products per se. They focused on technology that could be used in future products. And they had a group in Los Gatos that, I guess, Mr. Lowe had identified as being the right folks to work on building a prototype of the single-user computer because he wanted to have something he could take to senior management that would work and say, this is coming. So it's going to have this and that implications. And so we should prepare ourselves to start lining up resources when this happens. And so they built this product, codenamed SCAMP. And it had something like a five-inch display and a high-density data cassette was the storage. And it had a keyboard on it. And it was a pretty good-sized box that they built. Oh, and they took a high-end operating system, and they emulated it, and so basically scaled it to a small box like that, and they plugged it in the wall, and you could do real computing on it. So PC magazines call that the world's first personal computer. It wasn't sold, of course. It was only one prototype, and it's now in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. What happened as a result of that prototype was that my manager was associated with Mr. Lowe and some other projects. And so I guess they wanted to have an industrial design model of SCAMP that would look more like what a real product would be if it was a quote-unquote single-user computer for consumer. I mean, small business and consumer. And so I got assigned to do a prototype of that
1: was this based upon the IBM 5100
2: it was before that the 5100 was derived from Scamp my product was in between i studied the scamp prototype and the electronics that were in it and the media and so forth and then i made a model a wooden model non-working but i had a little bit larger screen and i used the keyboard technology we had that was a touch panel not that it would have been the best keyboard for data entry but It looked new and fresh and contemporary. That was the idea, was to try to do something with this model to look like this is something not right now down the road. And it was much smaller than the engineering prototype. I produced that, and so uh, Mr. Lowe took that model together with the engineering prototype and made the rounds within the corporation. The feedback was they said the market hasn't developed yet, for something like this, so we're gonna wait. What Mr. Lowe wanted to do was to keep going back with an evolution of prototypes as this technology started developing. And so I got assigned to be his designer. So in addition to the mainstream products that I was working on as part of the product plan, he would periodically come to me and say, I'd like to have a model for this, that, or the other. And so I probably did about eight of those between 1973, which was the year for the Scamp model, and 1980, when IBM finally decided to do their own PC after the market had developed. Their business approach at that point was not to be a leader in that single-user computer, which turned into the personal computer field. I think they wanted to let the market develop, and then they would make a decision and go in and you know try to take the market. When you looked at that company and the amount of you know funding that it took to run that machine in 160 countries with 450,000 people, then it seemed like a valid business model to do that. It took them seven years before they decided to jump into it with the first IBM PC, the 5150. And then I was assigned to do that product. That was the last product I did before I moved into management.
1: So when did the 5150 release?
2: 1981.
1: And from memory, the Apple II was in 77, correct?
2: Yes. Apple II is in 77. I think the Apple I, which was just a board, was 76. These concepts that I mentioned we were working on started with SCAMP in 1973. And like I said, about eight models I worked on probably every year. I had another model using different technologies that were being developed. There was one in early 1977, which was actually before Apple II was launched, that used bubble memory cartridges. It was something that was being developed in IBM Research. It was fundamentally a USB type plug in cartridge about the dimensions of a credit card, but thicker. It was a rich technology, rich in the sense that it was still under development in IBM research and it was expensive. But Mr. Lowe really felt like it was important to use that, make a working model of a single user computer with that technology. So he assigned some engineers to work with me and they built a working model in my industrial design model with the bubble memory cartridges. And when Apple came out later that year, this machine that I'm mentioning, it was codenamed Aquarius, you know, new age that was in the seventies. And so it was appropriate for all that stuff. It was about a third the size of the Apple II and maybe 10 times more powerful. And you didn't need separate diskette boxes to stack on top of the keyboard and the main processor box because these cartridges fit in slots on the side.
1: But how much would that have cost if it reached production?
2: Ideally, it would have been competitive to the Apple machine had they pursued it. But they couldn't do that immediately because that bubble memory technology was still being developed. They couldn't just have transferred that technology immediately because it would have been too expensive a product for that. They would have had to wait maybe, I don't know, a year or more, I'm guessing, to do that. But Mr. Lowe took that product and he took it up through management. And it was the same perspective that the market, even though Apple had come out later with their machine, and of course the other Altair product, it came come out in 1975, which had just switches and LEDs, but it could actually do technical computing on it. They said the market still hasn't developed yet, so they did not pursue the Aquarius product in bubble memory. And a lot of people were disappointed in that because they felt like that would give IBM this huge leadership position. If the bubble memory technology had been fully developed, we would never have had diskettes. But that didn't happen. And so between 77 and 1980 there were several more ideas. The last one that I was asked to do by Mr. Lowe was create a model built on an Atari platform. Atari had a Model 800 which had game cartridges. The top cover behind the keyboard would open up and you put these cartridges in there. And the idea was That was the platform that they felt like the company could get one of these personal computers quicker than IBM doing it itself within the development process within the company. So obviously it was buying Atari, using their platform, putting an IBM keyboard in there, which had been more robust for data entry and so forth, and then adding processing and storage electronics. And so I had to go to Atari in California and study that machine and bring one back to create a model based on the same overall dimensions, but it had to appear totally different. So I had to create an IBM looking machine, if you would. I did that. And again, Mr. Lowe took it up to upper management, but he also had a plan B. He developed a plan with the team that he had put together of what it would take to do our own, in one year, which was unheard of doing a product in IBM at that point in time in one year. And it involved basically getting the approval from corporate management to go around some of the bureaucracy and the processes that were in place and to drive it. But first, what he did was he presented the Atari machine. I understood that the response from senior management was something to the effect of, are you crazy? (laughs) The largest computer company in the world has to buy a little company like this to create our own personal computer. What would the media and our stockholders and everybody think about that? And so he pulled plan B out and said, well, we can do our own if you give us the right to basically run through people and around people.
1: Corporate bait and switch.
2: Yes, that was it. That was exactly it. So they gave him the go ahead for that. And then the rest is history. They put together a special team in Boca, and I got assigned to be the industrial designer working with the PC team. And they created it in 12 months.
1: That was the original IBM PC?
2: Yes, the first one, the 5150. I think it came out in August of 1981. I have to say that those guys were given the okay to go through the system to get it done. And so those of us that were in other organizations like service organizations that worked with that particular technology group, we had to chase a lot of stuff to get what we had to contribute to it. So there are a lot of war stories, (laughs) some that we won, some that we lost. that's just the way it goes sometimes.
1: These days, IBM isn't really a hardware business since they sold the PC division to Lenovo. It's a service business that I think publicly is perceived as not quite finding its feet since its departure
2: from hardware.
1: I mean, how do you feel about that, looking upon a business that hires half as many people now as it did when you were there?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting that their design group now is probably about 10 times or more larger than when we were doing primarily hardware because they're into services, a lot of UX design now of course, for software. We had 15 design centers, and I think they probably have maybe 100 or so now around the world. The the design organization has grown significantly, and they still have the same principles as the initial program that Tom Watson Jr., who who was the CEO at the time, who started the design program. He took over from his father, Tom Watson Sr., who is the founder of IBM, who retired. And Mr. Watson decided that IBM as a company back then in the early 50s, it did not appear. Its products, its advertising, its buildings, all the brand elements didn't equate to the advanced technology that they were developing. So it was this disconnect. The products looked old, the graphics looked old, but the technology was really advanced. That's when he created the program by bringing in industrial designer and architect Elliot Noyes, who, interestingly enough, they had known each other at the Pentagon during World War II. Apparently, their offices were right next to each other. And then, after the war, Elliot opened up an architecture and industrial design firm in New Canaan, Connecticut. And Mr. Watson and his family didn't live too far away. And so, when he became CEO, he tracked down Elliot and asked him to be a consultant, director of design, not as an employee. I don't think Elliot wanted to do that. He wanted to be a consultant because he had other clients. And then Elliot brought in Paul Rand, preeminent graphic designer, to shape the IBM graphic identity. And he also brought in Charles Eames to work on exhibitions and films. I mean, even though Charles and Ray Eames Designed furniture, designed their own home in, in Santa Monica, California, which is just this kind of famous model now that they did. IBM wanted to use their skills to communicate what benefits technology could have to the quality of life. Because, like I said, back in particularly in the 1950s, these machines were locked up in rooms of companies and there was no such thing as personal computers, of course. And technology, computer technology was a mystery to a lot of people. And I think in some cases it was like, gosh, it's going to control everybody, you know. And so what the company wanted to do was to bring the technology down to a human level. Shaws and Ray were really good at doing that in filmmaking and, and exhibitions. So they created exhibitions like Mathematica and Computer Perspective that travel around the world and brought that technology down to a level where people could see how it could help the environment, how it could help the quality of life, and so forth. That was the initial program in the 50s. Fortunately, they had that program reporting at a corporate level to communications, corporate communications, the vice president who reported to the CEO, not to marketing, not to engineering, senior management. That was a very smart thing to do. Because communications was like a neutral party. And communications represented all the messages for the brand. And so design, obviously, represented the brand. At a local level, the design centers, which included industrial design and graphic design, they reported to the laboratory. So they were in the development environment with engineering. But they had a dotted line to the corporate design program, and that was in the corporate policy, they represented the brand at all those locations for all the products and graphics that were going on there. They had responsibility for the brand image across all those different divisions and locations and been part of the corporate role there was to coordinate all that stuff because in some of the early large systems, you know, there were dozens of products that could be in the same huge computer room, but those products could be developed at different laboratories all over the world. But they had to appear and work and have a human interface like they came out of one place. And so that was a huge coordination job to do that, particularly before the internet. So a lot of flying around the world.
0: You're right. That's a huge coordination job How often did you fly?
2: Even as an industrial designer, we met with the corporate consultant and all the design center managers met every three months, either at a corporate space we had where we could have all the models in this big building that we had. It was a separate like a photo studio building or at another location around the world. Each design center manager would come to those meetings and maybe bring one or two designers and then the corporate consultant would come. In my case, it was Elliot Noyes. And so when I would get invited to come to one of those meetings, then I would have to make a presentation to him and the design management on the design of the product I was working on. And it was an open critique session. And there was an industrial design manager on the staff of the corporate program who would note all the things that needed to get done and would track it to make sure that it happened and it got implemented in product development later. It was a well-structured system, but it took a ton of time to do that.
1: I was going to say, it just reminds me of a story you told me. In a certain year in the late 80s, coordinating design suddenly got a lot quicker after a certain news story in 1989.
2: Oh, yes. When I moved into the corporate job, which meant I was going to be on airplanes even more than when I was you know, a designer, because I had to coordinate all that. I was watching CNN when the pro-democracy protests were going on in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. And if you remember, it got violent when the Chinese government decided to come in and shut it down. I guess they didn't want the violence to be broadcast around the world, so they shut down satellite feeds so nobody could send real-time images out. However, I was watching CNN. And all the other networks were covering that too. But CNN was showing frame grabbed images of things that they were saying just happened. All the other networks apparently were just showing the picture of the reporter and the audio that was coming over telephone lines because the Chinese government didn't shut down telephone lines. Little did they know that CNN was a beta site for Sony testing this digital system that could send images compressed over telephone lines. So the CNN reporters were out with what looked like a 35-millimeter camera, and nobody was taking cameras away from the press at that point, I guess. These looked like regular 35-millimeter cameras, but they were one of the early Sony digital cameras of ProMavica that had cards in it. And so the reporters would take the cards back to the hotel where they had this unit That they would send these images to Atlanta, then they would be downloaded and put on the screen. So nobody knew how they were doing this. So I thought that, my goodness, we could use that to help coordinate between design centers. And so I called the Sony rep in New York and found out about this system and asked for a demo. They brought two systems up because each end had to be the same system, the same custom Sony system. I think it was called the digital handling system, I believe was the name of the product type. They gave a demo of it and it was really expensive. I think it may have been close to $100,000 for a pair, maybe a little less than that, but at any rate, it was a lot of money. But I brought my management into the demo because I needed to make sure I could get approval to justify that kind of money. Because I wanted to put one in corporate, one in the consultant studio. At at that point, our industrial design consultant was Richard Sapper. Elliot had passed away in 1977, and Richard Sapper was hired as our industrial design consultant. He was a German designer in Milan, Italy, and one of the preeminent industrial designers in the world. And so I wanted to put one of these stations in his studio one in corporate, one in Japan, which is where the first ThinkPad was being developed. And I wanted to put another one in Austin, Texas. We were working on some high-end workstation stuff at that point. And so after the demo, my management said, just do it. I mean, it was a no-brainer. You put the media in, which was from the camera, taking the picture of a product, let's say. And then it sent it over the telephone lines and it would paint the picture on the other end It took maybe 20, 30 seconds in those days to do that. It wasn't anything close to what we can do today. But it painted the picture. And you also had a stylus, a tablet with a stylus on it. So you could write on the digital image and that would transmit across. So we would do that and use a speakerphone. So we had a a live conference call looking at the same image and then interactively writing. And the writing would show up on the other end. We were the only company, to my knowledge, doing that at that point in time in 1989, coordinating a global design program and sending these images around the world. In fact, the ThinkPad, the first ThinkPad, the 700C that came out in 1992, it was developed using that system because I had Richard Sampara asked to do the concept of the first ThinkPad. He was working with the industrial designer and IBM Japan, where the product was going to be engineered and manufactured, and the designer there, Kaja Mazaki, they were working together on this product. And so it was like a 24-7 process between Richard doing something in Milan and sending it in Japan. Then it just cycled around, and then it would come to corporate, and we would look at it. It was great.
1: Remote working back in 1992.
2: Yeah, well, the, the, we got this machine in 1989 and started doing coordination. And then the ThinkPad development started probably 1991 or toward the end of 1990. We were doing other coordination with it before the ThinkPad, but the ThinkPad was the first major product, new product that got developed using that tool.
0: That's very useful. The internet didn't get really rolled out until mid nineties. So you had that advantage. Mid
1: 2000s, if
0: you're
2: Australian. Yeah. 95 is when we got the internet. But of course, then the resolution was not that great. We couldn't do anything near what we can do today with imagery. One time I was giving a presentation to an executive, kind of touting how the design program was way ahead of the game, doing this worldwide coordination using this new technology. And all of a sudden, a picture started painting on the screen, and it was a picture of Santa Claus. this was around christmas time and then another picture came down and it was a picture of jesus and i'm thinking what is going on here so then the handwriting started because when the handwriting would scan in it would come across like somebody was writing it and it said whose birthday is it anyway (laughs) (laughs) merry christmas the yamato japan design team it was a christmas card I was relieved I had no idea what was going to be coming next with that. See, that was a nice example of social interaction using that tool, bringing the teams together.
1: And you got to experience it a decade before the rest of us, at least. Yeah, it was great. It's very strange considering that looking back, IBM gets a lot of flack for being boring and supposedly losing the PC market to upstarts like Compact, Dell, and Apple. Mm Mm-hmm. Also in shows like my personal favorite, Holt and Catch Fire, a fictional dramatization of Bill Moggridge, the founder of IDEO, his time at Grid Systems, and then there's the 1984 advertisement by Apple. These all depict IBM in an almost villainous conformity. How does it feel knowing that your team's work was so successful it became ubiquitous and as a result, an almost malicious norm?
2: The whole perception of IBM, I think, is probably that way with a lot of big companies. It's like Big Brother, back on the point where technology is kind of a mystery. I think it's kind of a mystery because it's not understood. And those companies can have a lot of power. And so they can be painted as a villain. Working inside the company, you understood that was just part of what was going to happen. Kind of the nature of the beast, if you would. And IBM's case with the PC was that, you know, Compact reverse engineered it. That's how Compact was created. They reverse engineered the PC. And the Haunted Catch Fire series, I think IBM, as I remember, I think that was in season one, when they tried to copy the BIOS, the code, and they got sued. Well, that series was based on what Compact did. But see, Compact they were smart in that they knew that they couldn't copy the BIOS, but they reverse engineered it in a process, my understanding is just a very high level. I don't know all the details of what they did.
1: We called it a clean room development. One team would reverse engineer the original system and then write a brief to a second team that would never see that system.
2: Oh, well, I got you right. So so it wasn't a combined thing where they could get sued with that, but the, but they, they separated it.
1: So you got to run the legal paperwork.
2: Yeah, IBM waited a long time. I, took you through the story of all the early stuff that Mr. Lowe was putting together. It took them a long time to finally come out with the first one, the 5150 in 1981. And because there was pressure to do it fast, they made the decision, they meaning that development team, to use standard parts, standard cards. I mean, that's why the processor box itself is kind of like a bread box because the cards were standard and they were, I don't know, maybe six inches high, something like that. And they farmed out, you know, the software and they farmed out the processor, to Intel, the software operating system was Microsoft. When they're using those standard elements like that, it doesn't take much to replicate it. And that's what happened. It was the first IBM product that did not have a proprietary processor and other elements that would give the protection that IBM wanted to have a proprietary machine. And so then it was natural that everybody was going to start cloning it, basically. And that's what happened.
1: So was that intentional or was it just a side effect of trying to do the process very quickly?
2: I think it was the effect of doing it quickly. I don't know whether you say it was desperation or not, but what's the old saying? That some things come out of desperation rather than inspiration. The 12-month time frame. Drove certain decisions that they had to make, you know, and that was one of them. But on the other hand, having it open like that made that product initially, for a good bit of time, the best-selling PC in the world. It outsold Apple. It's outsold everybody else until all the clones started coming in and then cutting into the sales volume. It was, I guess, a natural thing to happen. Now, they tried to bring back proprietary electronics with the PS2, Personal Systems 2, that came out in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s. But it wasn't successful as the first IBM PC because there were a lot of products out by that time, a lot of PC products. And of course, fast forward to 2005 when IBM sold their PC business, including ThinkPad, to Lenovo, it was because Those products had gotten to be a commodity. Although ThinkPad was a higher level of notebook computer, a business professional, business machine, overall, that business was a commodity. So IBM's model over the years that I witnessed during my time there was whenever a product line got to be a commodity in that it was competing on price, then IBM would sell it. They did that with printers. They made copiers at one point. High speed laser copiers. I worked on one back in the 70s. They sold that business. So that was their mode of operation. And so it didn't surprise me when they did it. In fact, the industrial designers who were working on the IBM ThinkPad in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Yamato, Japan were offered the opportunity to do the same job as Lenovo designers. And I think most all of them took that job. And the person in Raleigh, North Carolina, who was kind of coordinating all the ThinkPad stuff from a design management point of view, he became the vice president of design at Lenovo. In fact, that person, David Hill, can be credited with maintaining the integrity of that design. The initial concept, the simplicity of it, initially the concept, was designed by Richard Sapper, our consultant, and it was inspired by a Japanese bento lunch bar.
1: That's not a story you typically hear that it was inspired by a bento lunchbox. Most retellings just seem to say that it was some sort of design by committee ubiquitous corporate dice. I don't know if that's really fair.
2: Mm -hmm. And if you looked at it on the table, it was a black box and it had the IBM ThinkPad logo in the corner, but it wasn't really big. And so it was this innocuous, simple business machine. And when you opened it up, like you would open up a Bento lunchbox where you see the food and the color, you open it up and you had the color display and the keyboard and all that. That was the basic idea. And so David continued that concept because you know the technology got thinner and the displays got higher resolution and a larger and all these improvements in technology. But the concept was so flexible, yet it had this integrity of a certain aesthetic to it that you can maintain. And he used the analogy of the Porsche 911. (laughs) And I think it's a great example. When you look at the evolution of a 911 from the beginning up until later in its development.
1: The bones are the same.
2: Yep, the bones are the same. The shape is going to change a little bit and evolve in some of the proportion. But the fundamental idea of that vehicle is the same. And so when he went to Lenovo and his team, They told Lenovo Management that should continue, and they did.
1: I, for one, am pretty thankful that the IBM PC was cloned, because without it, the digitalization of the world probably would have been delayed by at least 10 years, and all of the technologies we enjoy today probably wouldn't be as ubiquitous, or at least it'd be a lot more expensive.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It turned out to be the right thing to happen. This is Tom Hardy, and you're listening to Redacted.
0: So Tom, I just wanted to loop back to touch on your time working at IBM. What was it like working alongside William
2: Lowe? He was a senior executive, and he would come into my office and pull up a chair. And back then, when we were doing all this stuff, it was on the drawing board. There was not industrial design software until sometime... In the 1980s, all this work for him was done between 73 and 1979, early 1980. And so he would pull up a chair by my drawing board and we'd talk about it and I'd be making some sketches and then he'd come back and we had that kind of one-on-one relationship. He was great, a brilliant guy. He understood what was going to happen. It was a wonderful experience interacting with an executive like that.
1: Speaking about William Lowe, how would he have convinced others that design was a value add?
2: For one, you have to look at design as being a key to the differentiation, but also human-centered. The one key differentiation between design and engineering, let's say, in developing technology products, is the designer, first and foremost, you focus on the human. And the ergonomics of the product, how easy it's going to be to use. The aesthetics, the emotional side of that is part of it, but it's more first and foremost the behavior. You put design in that context as opposed to some people's view of design as window dressing, you know, so to speak. Pick a color at the end of the process or you put a curve on it or you do something like that. That's styling, that's not design. He understood that.
1: How would that differ from what your answer
2: would be? I'll look at it as the same. The value of design, first and foremost, is human-centered because it has to resonate with the customer and at different levels. One is it's easy to use. The other is it has to be something that's pleasing. But all that has to work together. It's the combination of rational and emotional, is not one or the other. They both are complementary to each other. They're not strictly opposites. A good designer has to balance that. Depending on what the product is, what the intent of it is, who's going to use it, what level of interaction somebody's going to have, what environment it's going to be used in, all those things have to define this play between the rational and emotion. But every product has to have both.
0: Going back to when you were a leader at IBM, what did you look for when you're expanding your
2: team? Systems thinkers, people who understood the point I just made about combining the rational emotional, is really having this attitude of duality that there's this complement. But first and foremost, it's systems thinking, lateral thinking, coming at solving a problem in a new way. You had to be flexible and open. And also curious. A good designer has to be constantly curious.
1: Dangerously curious, I might say.
2: That's even better. Dangerously curious. (laughs) Even at this point in my career, I'm curious. I really enjoy new things and looking at different approaches and processes. And you have to do that if you're going to move forward.
1: So what made you so curious that you wanted to leave IBM?
2: That story is interesting because I had planned to do 30 years at IBM because at 30 years, it's full retirement. Then you've got a pension, the old pension plan, and health benefits for the rest of your life. A watch? I don't think they gave watches at that point. I think it was a clock.
1: A <laughs> <laughs> grandfather clock.
2: Yeah, something like that. And so I had planned to do that. And I was in the corporate job when I hit 20 years. I was in that corporate position. It was a great job, and I was having this incredible time. But IBM was starting to go through some pains, if you would, within the information technology industry. There were some financial things that were going on. They were thinking about decentralizing even further. so there was a downturn financially for a period there, in the late '80s, early '90s. So what the company did was they offered a volunteer. early retirement program. Starting in 1989, I believe, was the first year. It wasn't mandatory because the respect for the individual view that they had was that if you wanted to volunteer, you could do it. But IBM never had any layoffs at all. That was a corporate policy up until Lou Gerstner came in in 1993. He came in to fix the finances, basically, and he was the first CEO that wasn't kind of a career IBMer. Everybody else up to that point was holding the line on that. So what they were doing is they were making this offer that said in 1992, if you had 22 years with the company and you wanted to volunteer for early retirement, and it was primarily people that were getting large salaries at that point, you could get what they called an eight-year bridge to 30, which meant you can move the clock up eight years and still get 30-year pension benefits. What you had to do, however, was to go on an unpaid leave of absence in 1992 for eight years because in the government's eyes, to get a 30-year retirement in the pension, you had to work for the company as an employee for 30 straight years. So by going on a leave of absence, you were still employed. But part of the deal was, at that point, you got a one-year lump sum payment equal to one year's salary. And after one year, if you were working in a confidential area in the company, you could work for a competitor, and you could start your own business. You could do anything you wanted to when you were on leave of absence. Financially, it was a no-brainer. You didn't lose anything on your pension You moved the clock up. And so I was looking at this program because I had to, like all managers, we had to give the overview to our employees at a departmental meeting. And I looked at this and said, oh, my God, I qualify for this. <laughs> <laughs> I started in 1970 and I had 22 years in 1992. At that point, I would have been 46 years old. And so I could do it again. I got go out and start another career. It was still very difficult, though, to make the decision. I, I decided to do it two weeks before the deadline because I started questioning my sanity. You know, I said, wait a minute, you've got this wonderful job. People are killed to have this job. It's a top job in the company from a design perspective. Why am I walking away from this? And so I actually paid somebody who, as a headhunter, who dealt in the industry a lot, to do some research for me is if I wanted to go out and start a design strategy consulting business at the end of 1992, what competition am I going to have? And what kind of business could it be at that point in time? So she came back with a report and it said there were only two people at that point in time that had directed global design programs for big companies. One was half retired. And the other one had moved to Singapore and was doing some consulting, but in more of a niche market.
1: You're not willing to name drop?
2: Well, one was Bob Blake, who was the former head of Philips Design. And I think the other one was Arnold Wasserman. Arnold had been the head of Xerox Design. Both of those were corporate design directors. And so it validated that it could be a good thing to do at that point in time. And with the caveat that it would probably take at least a couple of years to develop the whole model and get work and all that kind of stuff, but one had the safety net of that lump sum of one-year salary at the moment that you went on your leave of absence, and like I said, then you could do any kind of consulting work for anybody except after one year you couldn't. I mean, you couldn't work for a competitor until after one year. And it's interesting, the day that my year ran out, I was in Cupertino doing a little project for Apple.
1: (laughs) Can you elaborate?
2: It was a branding naming project, and the corporate design group out there asked me to come in and look at how they were structuring all of the names of all the products, the hardware and software, different hierarchies, and it was kind of all over the place. They wanted an outsider to come in and look at it from a systems perspective and put together a recommendation for a structure. It was a nice project. I knew the Apple design management. I think Bob Bruner at that point was the head of design. He was a Johnny Ive of Apple at that point. And then Hugh Doverly was the head of the graphic design area. You know, I'd none of those guys through the design management community for a long time. That was the story about why I decided to shift gears and do my own thing early. This is Tom Hardy, and you're listening to Redacted.
1: Maybe rolling the clock right back, what advice would you give to yourself, your much younger self, starting out?
2: Be agile, be constantly agile and curious. Those are two consistent things I think are really important. Agile meaning be open new things and other people's perspectives and always be curious
1: dangerously curious
2: yeah right i I should remember that i think that's really good you said it i like that dangerously curious
1: (laughs) (laughs) tom thank you very much for joining us today we really appreciate you sharing your story and i'm sure the audience will as well to the listeners check the show notes for links to everything we've mentioned
0: and you can find tom through his website verbalvisual.com and He's a very easy man to find as well if you just search for him with a great body of work.
1: Once again, Tom, thank you for coming onto the show. And if you're listening in Australia, you can watch all four seasons of Hot to Catch Fire on SBS for free. Until next time, this has been Redacted. The number you have dialed has not been recognised. Please check and try again. The number you have dialed has been Redacted. adapted. Redacted.